Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Today uh, is the last episode of 2020. And if you're like me, you're saying good riddance, man. But, uh, you know, listen, a lot of stuff happened in 2020 and things have been worse for people in the past in this country. Uh, I think it's a it's a time we're going to remember for the rest of our lives and our children are going to remember it as back of those days in the 2020s. Um, hopefully they won't we won't have these kinds of lockdowns on a regular basis. But on the other hand, don't be surprised if this becomes a new normal either. I mean, I think just with globalization and, you know, it's not unheard of anymore, especially if, you know, governments like China don't um, uh, don't clamp down on some of the activity that's going on in those countries that are making this uh, more likely. Anyway, uh, today's show is another Ask Buck show. It might be the last Ask Buck of uh, in a row. Uh, it certainly is the last Ask Buck of this um, this year. I just had so many questions that I had to keep going and going and going. But uh, lots of interesting questions that were asked. I appreciate all those questions. And, you know, as you think about uh, the, uh, you know, the answers and questions in this show, uh, make sure you go to uh, wealthformula.com and, you know, take some time to ask your questions there as well. And while you're at that website, also, if you are an accredited investor, now's as time as any, as good a time as any to join the Investor Club. The Investor Club is, of course, our Reg D group. It is where the magic happens. It allows accredited investors to take this kind of, you know, information, uh, you know, strategy, et cetera, and make it come to life. So again, go to wealthformula.com and sign up for Investor Club. Anyway, we will be back with this week's episode of Ask Buck after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. 
no wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I am going to try to plow through a bunch of questions because there's so many of them that, uh, man, oh, man, I am trying to figure out uh, how we're ever going to finish these. But they're good questions, so we need to uh, address them. I think this is a very good forum to uh, to make sure that we're continuing with sort of the general education component rather than simply interviewing people about specialized topics. So let me start, um, let's see, with the question here, there's so many of them, I'm afraid I might even repeat some, but uh, let me, let me uh, start here. It's uh, Jeff Heldeman says, first, let me thank you for your podcast and your informative website. I've been spending a lot of time with both with both and have just joined the investor club. I look forward to some exciting investment opportunities. Here's my question. If one has a substantive uh, liquidation event, what's your advice on where to safely store the cash for two to three years until the bulk of it can be deployed into various investments? FDIC is good for $500,000 in a joint account, but it seems like a hassle to open a bunch of different accounts uh, just to close them over the next few years. Thanks, Buck. Well, listen, Jeff, uh, you can find some wealth advisories. I know that keep your money in multiple accounts so that there is a uh, several FDIC insured accounts, um, you know, if that makes you feel better. Personally, I'm not one uh, for keeping much cash in the bank, so I would personally deploy into assets, you know, sooner rather than later. Uh, obviously, the additional uh, things that you can think about you know, we always were, were big fans on this show of, of the various uh, types of, you know, insurance and insurance accounts, uh, Penn Mutual, Mass Mutual, um, these kinds of uh, the cash accounts in there. I mean, they have a tremendous safety record over the last 120 years. They've they've uh, held firm and not only held firm, but paid dividends through bank failures during the Great Depression, uh, world wars. They've always paid dividends kept money safe. That's why so many people who survived that period of time in history, uh, who lived through that period of time, were so uh, hardcore about their life insurance products. Of course, we've uh, evolved to be a little spoiled and think that you know sometimes those things are not as profitable as other things can be, but there's so many things you can do with them strategy-wise. With WealthFormulaBanking.com, you can go check that out. It's also a place to keep, you know, great place to keep liquidity. Uh, and again, check out those advisories. You know, they have these multiple accounts. I've had that situation before, so I know it exists where you can have like brokerage accounts that keep your cash in multiple FDIC secured accounts. Anyway, uh, that's that's probably about all I got on that one. Uh, another question from Jeff was, I'd like to thank you for all you're doing on Wealth Formula. I've spent Years going through the process that you've described, 401ks, IRAs, the dot-com bus, followed by ups and downs of tech stocks, all to my frustration until I came across the concept 
of whole life infinite banking, uh, which is what we call wealth formula banking, by the way, and syndicated real estate. I've been reading and listening to everything I can find on the subjects and actually investing for the last three years. You are so spot on with your storyline that I swear sometimes I feel like you're talking to me specifically. I feel like I found an investing home on wealthformula.com. What I was looking for was a group with integrity, trustworthiness, and a very low threshold for BS. And I found it with your guidance. Please accept my heartfelt gratitude for that. Well, that's very nice of you to say, Jeff, and we'll try to keep up uh, the work on our side to make sure that we maintain those standards. Uh, Now, here's the question. He says, my question today is regarding the ATM opportunity. Of course, he's talking about our WF Velocity ATM fund, uh, which uh, December fund is, you know, by the time you get this, I mean, you'll basically it's the 29th is the deadline for that. Uh, He says, I expect some uh, divestor events next year and want to invest with WF Velocity Fund. And I was wondering what you see for the fund's run rate. Do you see another 5, 10, 15 years for this type of investment? One more thing I'd love to hear a podcast on is what to do with one's uh, dry powder while going through the process of deploying it, which can sometimes take a while. Okay, so let's start with the ATMs. Right now, they're, you know, the automatic teller machines, seven-year fund. People, I think the biggest thing that people think about when they are concerned about this fund potentially is that there's this sort of idea that maybe cash will come to an end. But, you know, here's the reality. There's absolutely no talk of legislation that would eliminate cash right now in, in Congress. And I'm sure you'll agree with me that the elimination of cash from a society especially ours, is a generational change. It's, you know, and while there's a lot of crazies in the podcast circuit who are always crying wolf, the reality is that these things take time. And, uh, you know, with I don't think there's a zombie apocalypse across uh, uh, that's coming up anytime soon. Um, And these types of things in general take time to occur, You know, in terms of cash, let's also rehash the facts. 72% of the U.S. population strongly opposes the elimination of cash. Cash is used by the underbanked, otherwise known as poor, otherwise known as a lot of minorities. Uh, Elimination of cash right now is seen as a racist thing. Uh, Believe it or not, this is in in the Bay Area where all those techies don't want to take cash. Well, they're getting... Basically, they're getting uh, in trouble because they're being told they're racist because people uh, are using only have cash and they can't come to those stores. The also the idea of failure of cash has failed in con- multiple countries, right? It's just not worked well. There was they tried it in India, it didn't work well. Uh, so, uh, in some, if there's no public support for it, no legislation, uh, I don't think we need to worry about the end of cash anytime soon. I mean, there's plenty of other things for. Congress to uh, work on if they ever actually worked on anything. And this seems pretty low on that list. And um, the other thing to remember is that the fund itself is uh, it's seven years, but the return on capital is very quickly. Uh, the, you know, the return on capital, even without the depreciation benefits is four years. So your cash is back. Your risk is off the table in four years with the tax benefits. It's three years, the tax effective benefit. So, you know, if you believe that cash is going to go away in the next four years, then uh, then don't do it. But I personally don't. 
I don't think that there's any evidence uh, to suggest that. Your other question was, um, where can you put money safely? What One's dry par- powder while going through the process of deploying it, which sometimes can take a while. Well, I, again, I would go back to, um, you know, you can use some of these uh, brokerage accounts that use multiple um, multiple FDIC secured accounts. But I mean, I, I really like the insurance route. I really do. I think it's a good way to go. I mean, you can't put it all there at once, but I think it's a nice source of liquidity. Obviously, you know, U.S. treasuries, especially those are that are inflation-adjusted tips, those would be another place, too, that uh, might might be consideration as well. So uh, let's see here. Doug asks, is there a way to change the depreciation amount of a property after it's been purchased? In the event one gets a good deal on a property, then implements the BRRR method, which is just a fancy way of saying buy, renovate, re, you know, and basically refinance and then, you know, cash out. So on a property that implements the BRRR method, increases the value of the building to, to uh, later be refinanced out. What about the depreciation amount? The land value would most likely stay the same. So you can increase depreciation somehow for tax purposes, question mark. Well, a little confused by your question, but I think if you're saying, if you're asking if you can increase your basis uh, of what you can depreciate uh, by the, you know, the increase in price, the answer, I mean, again, I'm now CPA, but I don't think that's, uh, that's possible. Um, the other, the other thing of course, is that if you, um, you know, if you buy something, you put it a bunch of capital expenditure, uh, and depreciate that, um, you know, I mean, obviously if you add that capex into a depreciation schedule, you could increase the amount that you could depreciate. But the problem with that in my mind is, well, why would you do that? Because right now, with the capex, you can expense the whole thing. So just take the expense or the depreciation now, and you wouldn't want to. Uh, you had no. You would have no reason to do that. Um, so right now, um, again, I'm not a CPA, but the idea would be: okay, your capex is all getting expensed anyway. So, so you're not going to. You know. So you. you, you there's no reason to increase basis there because you're going to depreciate all that in the first year. You're going to expense it in the first year. Um, in terms of the new value of a property, no, if you've got a property that you've increased in value uh, without, you know, without counting the cap backs, uh, that's just that's just profit. You're not going to be able to depreciate profit. So, um, again, I'm not a CPA, but uh, that's I think that's fairly straightforward. So I'm, I'm comfortable with that explanation. Now, let's see here. Justin uh, Dockendorf. Hi, Buck. I recently was listening to another podcast and they were talking about digital art and cryptocurrencies. I thought it was an interesting approach to art collecting and possibly a new form of investing. Any thoughts on this burgeoning asset class? Thanks for what you do. Uh, Justin, thanks for the nice compliment. Here's what I'll tell you on this stuff, because I think, listen, I think we've had the same guy on our show a while back. And, uh, listen, as we start going on, you know, we're, we're sort of in a Bitcoin bull run again, and hopefully we'll also see an altcoin bull run, but I don't know if we will or not. 
Um, when that happens, everybody starts talking about cryptocurrency and blockchain. And even even businesses that have nothing to do with cryptocurrency and blockchain will start to talk about the applications of cryptocurrency or blockchain um, just so that it sounds more exciting and uh, innovative. But really, I think there is a, you know, even though there's a role for blockchain in many of these things in terms of, you know, security tokens, basically uh, securitization of assets, uh, we have to take these things for what they're worth, right? Um, if you want to invest in art, you're, you know, think about the investment through the lens of investing in art. Uh, don't think about uh, the cryptocurrency element of that because all that's doing is providing sort of a, a database or a way of, uh, of you know, separating out ownership. So, you know, I don't know why you would necessarily choose an investment because of the way the security is divvied out. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, and listen, I'm not saying that any of this stuff is fraud or anything, but listen, at the end of the day, each one of these things that are out there, they're, they're designed to bring your attention to them as bright and shiny objects. And my goal on this show for some time has been quite simple to tell you that as much as it would be fun to do all these different things, my experience over the last decade and wealth creation has been keep it boring. The more boring, the better. Boring is good. If you can find things that work over and over again, multifamily, you know, uh, apartment buildings, working class, boring stuff like that, uh, keep doing it. And, you know, if you want to play with some of these things, by all means, but make sure you also understand it and don't get seduced by, you know, the. Uh, cryptocurrency applications or blockchain applications. All right, let's see. The next one here, uh, Andrew, he says, I need parental advice. Oh, my, Andrew. Pandemic, deflation, political unrest, lack of jobs due to automation. What do you advise your children? How do you give them, uh, like Tony Robbins says, a sense of why? Well, I'm looking for more than a generic get your kids involved in STEM education. As far as I'm concerned, there are only two major sectors that will always need human hands-on skills, housing and healthcare. Love to hear your feedback. Well, Andrew, let's start by saying that I'm not used to answering existential questions on this show, but I will try it and give it a try uh, and parenting questions. Um, you know, I can usually say I'm not a CPA, but in this case, I actually am a parent. My girls are little though. They're 11, eight and five. So let me tell you, uh, every, for everybody, this is a very personal thing. Uh, for me, part of my personal goal is to create enough family wealth where I can tell them, my, my little girls that, Hey, we got money in the family, follow your passions and try not to worry about the money. Now, if they're good kids, that's going to work out, right? They're not going to just go and, uh, you know, just party all the time and do nothing useful. And I don't think my kids are that way. They they are they are, they seem like good people already. Um, now, if you do that, if you're able to get them to really focus on their passions and not, you know, um, 
mundane stuff like some of us did, like, you know, trying to make a living and making sure that we, you know, went to graduate school or medical school or dental school or whatever, just imagine what you would have done differently if you didn't have to be mindful of this idea of making a good living. Now, for me, that does not mean I don't tell my girls that they should go to college. Of course, I think they should. It just means you know, go to college with an open mind, learn for the sake of learning and see what people are doing with their lives that inspire you. You know, when I was in college, um, and I took a bunch of history classes and I was good at that and I was going to be a history major. Then I decided I was going to do, uh, you know, science and I started taking a bunch of biochemistry and molecular biology and all this stuff. And, uh, and I kept getting A's, kept getting good grades and then decided I want to go to med school the problem was at that point when I decided I want to go to med school, I only took classes that I felt like I could get A's in because otherwise I was worried I wouldn't get into med school. So for me, I know this sounds crazy, but that meant taking advanced biochemistry and molecular biology and organic chemistry and all that kind of stuff, the geeky stuff, because I knew I could ace that. But I knew, but I, but I wouldn't take things like art. <laughs> And I wouldn't take things like art history, things like that, that I didn't feel like I would, you know, was going to do necessarily do great at. In retrospect, it's kind of a shame, right? Because that's where you would have learned stuff. And maybe I would have had a passion for some of those things. I don't want them to have that, right? So I want them to have an open mind and learn about things. Um, and And that's not just limited to college, right? I mean, think about, you know, if you're not a physician, maybe, you know, if you're a physician, you just re- went to residency. But if you're not, you got some jobs out of college. And what'd you do? You went there, you basically tried to, you know, make some money for the first time, et cetera. But what if you approached each and every one of those initial jobs as another place to learn, right? You might get different kind of jobs because you might be like, what would I like to learn about? And maybe I'll get a job there. Yeah, you know, you and the idea there again is to try to get these jobs, um, you know, as education, and it just so happens that they'll pay you for your education, and that's how you see it. Bottom line is, you know, I think that there's a truth in the idea that you can't know what your passions are until you have exposure to different things in your life. So even after college, um, I want them to take jobs and not think about them as ways to pay the bills, but education. And they just so happen to get paid. And that's pretty much, uh, by the way, what every entrepreneur that I know has ever done as well. I mean, I've never met an entrepreneur who's been able to start a business where they didn't have some exposure to that area uh, from having a job first. You know, they worked for a company and realized they could do it on their own or maybe they could do it a little bit better. And then they were off to the races. So. Uh, bottom line is that's kind of my, uh, you know, that's my, my take on things. I don't know. Uh, I don't know that, that I have anything more to offer than that, but hopefully that's of some help or at least some, uh, food for thought. We have some recorded questions. Let's take a couple of those. Hello, Buck. This is Ravi calling. I just wanted to say thank you for all of the valuable information that you provide to your listeners. I had a particular question regarding student housing as it relates to college students. Recently, I was presented an offer regarding an apartment building that consisted of about 200 plus units for college students. It was in a proximity 
of a college in Georgia. I believe it's Valdasta. And the numbers look good on the performer, but as many of us know, these performers are not always the most accurate in representing um, the financials. I've had my concerns regarding student housing. In the past, I was always considering it, but more recently with the pandemic has shown some of the weaknesses in that asset class. In particular, students are being sent home. Uh, I don't know if they are absolved of the obligation to pay uh, while they are away from uh, physical attendance in school. Although they are co-signed by parents, there is inherent risk to this asset class now that many schools are going virtual. As you know, I'm already invested in Western wealth, and I've been happy with, with that investment, but wanted to hear your opinion regarding student housing uh, as it relates to college students and what experience you've had and what you see in the future and what your general view is on that. Once again, thank you for uh, all of your efforts and look forward to hearing from you. Take care. Uh, Robbie, good. Thank you, first of all, for being a longtime listener and investor and stuff. We appreciate your support. Here's the thing. Student housing sounds interesting to me. It does. But let's uh, move a step back for a moment. You know, as limited partners in these deals uh, looking to invest in various assets, our first inclination, uh, as much as it, it probably think, you know, makes you want to do it this way, you probably should not start with the pro forma itself. As, as you said yourself, pro formas can be pretty well manipulated to say whatever you want them to say. Uh, you know, I can give me a good spreadsheet and I can make Swampland in Florida look pretty good on a pro forma with some, you know, glossy images, maybe a picture of some alligators or whatever, and some growth projections. So while I think it's useful to understand the type of assets, uh, uh, you might be interested in, I would say that um, the most important element in making a decision to invest or not really relates to finding the right operator with whom to invest. As you mentioned, you know, in terms of multifamily, you know, we, we work very much with the Western Wealth Capital. It's a major uh, partner of our credit investor group. But Many of our investors, many of our investors know they like multifamily. Um, and so having a group like Western Wealth makes it easy for us to feel comfortable getting exposure to this asset class. Um, but then the question becomes more specific to the executive summary, right? So, uh, you know, you, you know, you like multifamily, you know, you trust Western Wealth, then you can actually go to an executive summary. So it's sort of, you got to have those pieces in place. Um, you know, in, in, in the Western wealth example, by the time that you go through this, you already have answered, uh, the hardest question, which is, do I trust what I'm looking at in the first place? Right. Um, so if you're looking at a pro forma, you don't know if you can trust it because you don't know the group, you don't know their track record. You don't know if, you know, they're just really good at making spreadsheets, so, you know, if you're basing decisions on an executive summary, you should be able to trust the executive summary. That's the bottom line. And as you know, in the case of Western Wealth Capital, you know, they're averaging nearly 30% annualized returns at, after over 30 divestments. Uh, but their pro formas never show a projected annualized return of more than 17 to 19%. What does that tell you about whether you can trust uh, that group or not? I think it gives you a pretty good idea. So, 
Bottom line is, I don't know very much about student housing myself, so I won't pretend to be an authority with regard to your specific question. Um, you know, I think student housing is is certainly interesting. Um, I don't know if I see significant value in it compared to working class multifamily, but it's something I would you know consider. But only if I knew an operator, uh, you know, with with uh, you know consistent track record and and results. The other thing I'll just say is that there are things out there that do have those consistent track records, those good track records, but the return profiles are not necessarily as uh, even as good as what we're getting in multifamily. You know, so you know, a good example of that is I had a opportunity to bring some, uh, a, a chain of, uh, you know, some, some fast food restaurants to the group. And if you look at the pro forma at the end of the day, again, it was like, you know, it was like a 15 to 19% annualized return. And maybe it would have been doing better, but it was definitely higher risk than multifamily. So I guess for me, and again, sticking to my thesis of being boring, uh, and boring is good. I just said, well, I don't. I just don't see the point. I mean, I, I'm, I'm. People are going to live somewhere, no matter what. They may not need your fast food, though. Anyway, that's my uh, that's my take. Hopefully, I don't know that that's very helpful, but that's kind of the way I think about it. All right, let's see here. Hi, Buck. This is Siddharth Choksi from Portland, Oregon. I'm a longtime listener of your show, uh, and I recently joined your investor group. I want to ask you about your most profitable asset. You may be thinking that I'm talking about your apartments, uh, but I'm not. Uh, I'm talking about your partners. You seem to have a knack for finding the best in the business and partnering with them. If you don't mind, uh, can you please share how you find them and collaborate with them? Uh, what's your process for someone who is just starting and wants to recreate the magic that you have? Uh, how would you mentor them? Thank you. Take care. Bye. Good question. Siddharth, what you said is, I think, pretty perceptive. And I think it's probably one of the things that I do have, you know, some unique skills when it comes to this. Um, but listen, I here's a deal. I can underwrite properties. I can come up with a value add plan. But those things, uh, anybody can learn. The hardest thing to do in the capital aggregation, syndication business is finding good partners and team members. And if you don't know that by now, that's something you got to get into your head. And it really relates to even Ravi's last question, because this requires a totally different kind of intelligence, because there are some things you can do uh, that are pretty easy just to, you know, just to make a list of, for example, you want partners who have a track record of excellence first and foremost. So, you know, if there's some transparency there, which, you know, you, there better be, you can find out about the track record. Um, you know, if your track, if your partners have good track records, they should be happy to show you what they've done in the past, good and bad. They should be able to speak freely about the things that went well. And uh, they should, you know, be able to speak elegant, elegantly about things that didn't. Uh, transparency in general is very important in this business. Um, of course, you can also do some of the basic things out there, like, you know, background checks, Google searches. They'll tell you a lot. Then you actually need to spend time with people and see the work they do uh, and work they have done 
firsthand. Uh, you have to do that. Then comes the part that becomes somewhat instinctual, which is trust. And that is hard to teach. You know, can you trust someone or a team of people? Um, a lot of this ends up being instinct, right? I mean, it, it does, unfortunately. I look for people and teams that seem, seem like they have a lot of integrity, that they care about their investors and see themselves as fiduciaries. You know, the idea of the idea of losing money should make your partners feel sick to their stomach. You know, it sounds crazy to think that like, you know, these high powered private equity people would feel sick about losing your money, but they should and they should never lose that sense of responsibility. Right. I mean, I feel it all the time. I mean, if So anyway, the the intangible qualities that I'm talking about here require some emotional intelligence, but that's something you really have to develop. Some people are born with it a little bit more than others, but you know you can also develop it just by the school of hard knocks. And then one last thing, um, that, that last part of trusting someone or team is much easier when you have a character reference. Um, and, and let me just go back to the good fortune I had of, of you know, partnering with Western Wealth Capital uh, you know, I felt very good about that team. I spent time with them personally. I walked properties. I saw their track record. But you know what made it even easier for me to feel confident to bring that to our group was that Ken McElroy uh, of you know Robert Kiyosaki fame, the the real estate advisor to Robert Kiyosaki, Ken McElroy, who's also a guy I've invested with in the past and a guy who's um, I consider a friend. He's a really good guy, high integrity. Uh, I found out that Ken knew Dave Steele, one of the principals at Western Wealth Capital, for 30 years. When I asked Ken uh, about Dave, he just gushed about him. You know, talk, said he was one of the smartest guys you ever met, one of the you know best guys, smartest guys, great integrity, blah blah blah. When you got that, that's really helpful as well. You know, and that's where networking, knowing a lot of people, comes into play as well. But, you know, you have to be patient when you look for these relationships. You won't find great people overnight. Uh, the good news is that once you start establishing yourself, and again, you show yourself as somebody with integrity, somebody with a track record, the talent often comes and finds you. Okay, let's see. Next question. Hi, Buck. Uh, Srinivas here. Um, again, I want to thank you for everything that you've done for uh, myself, my family, and the entire uh, Wealth Formula community. Uh, the question that I have is sort of a high-level philosophic one as it comes to multifamily. Uh, the question is, you know, with the COVID pandemic, there have been such widespread eviction moratoriums that unfortunately a lot of tenants have taken advantage of. Uh, that is that regardless of whether or not they can or cannot pay rent or what, regardless of whether or not their ability to pay rent is due to the COVID pandemic uh, or due to other reasons, they're just, you know, refusing to pay rent uh, to the um, management team, uh, whether it's uh, uh, Western Wealth or anything else. And my question is, is that, you know, with the, with the likely election of Joe Biden, uh, with the potential Democratic majority in the Senate and the persistent Democratic majority in the House, 
my fear is, is that these eviction moratoriums will continue even uh, after the COVID pandemic. That is, um, even after we have a vaccine and it's widespread distribution, there'll still be um, excuses, for lack of a better term, about the economic impact of the prior shutdowns that will justify a prolonged moratorium. And so my question is, is I guess in twofold, number one is, do you think that this is likely uh, to occur? And secondly, if there, if there are uh, still widespread eviction moratoriums, how will that affect the performance of multifamily in general and the performance of multifamily in the particular assets that your community has invested in, uh, both with Dante on the one hand and Western Wealth on the other? I realize that we purposely invest in high growth markets with a lot of jobs and things like that. But uh, at the end of the day, if a tenant has an option of or of not paying rent, most likely they're going to try to do what they can to not pay rent. Um, And so that's sort of my fear. And I just wanted to see your thoughts on that. Again, thanks so much and looking forward to hearing your response. Uh, Yeah, I think these are good questions. I think a lot of people have these kinds of concerns, Trinivasan. Um, listen, as you said, we, um, we are buying in high growth markets with lots of jobs, right? That's really important, but not only that, remember there is one more piece that we tend to look at pretty closely and, um, that is the political landscape of each market. So, you know, listen, I, I live in California and I know a number of you are sort of anti-California, but you know what? I love it here. I like living here. I like the California lifestyle, especially here on the central coast. Uh, you know, it's not a bunch of crazies. We're just, we just got good weather. It's 70 degrees all the time. It's nice. And, um, but the thing about it is despite the fact uh, that I do love it here, I would never buy a business I was domiciled here. I would not um, invest in uh, in in investment real estate here um, because much of what you are concerned about with regard to rent strikes, more you know, uh, and that sort of thing, happened here in California. It actually happened, and the political landscape is such that it really did create a big problem for landlords. Did it happen to us? with our apartments in Texas and Arizona and uh, Georgia? Not really, no. Sure, we had people who were unable to pay because they weren't working, but we were really proactive uh, in helping tenants find local resources that helped with rent, uh, and um, they did what they could to pay rent themselves. Uh, And that's why we did as well as we did through this process so far. And I do think that in that regard, I do think that the worst is over. I know there's continuing economic impact, et cetera, but I think the worst is over. And I think the precedent of what could happen has already uh, happened. The state politics and also the tenant demographics that, um, that we had were very helpful. People didn't think that the government was going to sit by in these states and and let them do nothing and these tended to be uh hard-working blue-collar workers uh, who weren't looking for a handout in the first place and so we found that people were really trying to pay rent we helped them uh in situations where they couldn't vis-a-vis uh local programs and but there was uh, really you know i can't think of 
situations where people purposely did not uh, pay rent. But I did hear that from people who own property in California. Uh, and again, listen, in my, my opinion is the worst stuff's behind us now. Even if we have some bumps along the way over the course of the next six months, say we in our portfolio are very well capitalized. And I truly believe we're going to do just fine. Um, and the other thing that I think that is really important, and this goes to those of you who I think have taken the position that you don't want to invest right now because you're, you know, you're, you're afraid of what's going to happen and all sorts of stuff. And I respect that, but remember what we should be thinking about is not what happens over the next few months, right? That That's not what we're investing for. And, um, uh, we're not going to lose properties, you know, uh, we are, we're, our groups are just way too strong to lose properties. And the, the, if, if it came to that situation uh, before we ever lost the property, you know, Fannie and Freddie would be owning, you know, the entire uh, entire stock of American multifamily apartment buildings. So we're not going to lose properties and our portfolio is solid. And, um, you know, we're doing more than 99% out there to make sure we survive uh, and thrive in fact, uh, as you may recall, and um, uh, Srinivas, and I, I think you know this from your own things, but in your own newsletters that you're getting, but you know, Turo's uh, had record uh, rent collections during COVID. And so uh, bottom line is we are doing extremely well. And what we ought to be thinking about, again, is, is not the next few months, because we didn't buy these properties for the next few months, but we ought to be thinking about is why we bought these properties in the first place. Um, you know, we bought these properties uh, a couple years ago in higher interest environments when we currently have the next several years post COVID that are going to be really, really good. I really believe that. I think the stuff you uh, uh, invested in specifically, I know, over the last couple of years is going to crush it. I think it's going to when we sell because I think, um, you know, because of these unexpected low interest rate environments, along with what the models are that uh, that you are invested in and in, in the specific properties. Now, um, one more thing, though. I think, I truly believe it is not, the time right now to be sitting on the side and waiting for the dust to settle uh, on investing again. I think if you do that, you're going to miss opportunities. I really do. And that's my opinion. I'm not giving you investment advice, but there are people who are waiting for, you know, uh, some crazy thing to happen and all of a sudden everything's on sale. I don't think it's going to happen. And I think you're going to be really disappointed if, if that's what you're waiting for, uh, it's, you know, it's not time to, it's not a time where we wait to buy real estate. We should be buying as much real estate now so that we can wait and do our value add programs and sell for a lot of money later. So hopefully that answers it, but, uh, short, uh, short answer there is I'm not, I'm really not worried. Okay. One more question here. And, uh, I think uh, that's all I can find right now. I know there's probably some other questions, but I'm kind of like 
uh, kind of got a mess of stuff here trying to figure out what I've answered and what I haven't. And I'm going to have to have Madeline go through and figure out what's left. Uh, so I have this question from, let's see, Abimal Shah. And in this situation, he says, Hey, Buck, hope you and the family are staying safe. Thank you for that, Bimmel. Uh, question is, the Western Wealth formula is based on velocity. Yes, it is. They get us our money back quick. However, there is a sizable prepayment penalty on some of these agency uh, loans. I've not seen that addressed anywhere. Are the returns just so good that it's not been a concern? Okay, so, I mean, this is sort of an investor uh, club question in general, but let's just, um, let me, let me just read Tim's answer specifically to, to this, just so you know, it is that the prepayment penalties are included in the three and five year exit pro formas typically. However, the penalties are detrimental when you have a fixed rate and fixed, um, and the fixed is currently higher than today's rate. The majority of our properties are floating. All new loans are floating, so the penalties aren't as great. I hope this helps. Bottom line is, uh, all of the, not only the, uh, not only the pro formas, but the you know divestments and everything like that are all taking this into consideration as well. Uh, but as uh, you know, as Tim's mentioned, I mean, I think that's the important thing is. Um, uh, you know, it, it depends a little bit on, you know, what your rates are and that kind of thing as well. And uh, most of the time what we're doing right now, because these interest rates are so low, is we're floating and we can lock in anytime we want. So that's basically it. Not a big, uh, not a big issue for us. And we've already baked that into the pro formas. Anyway, I believe that is all I have for this week. And uh, with that, we'll uh, have a a quick break here and we'll come back and uh, summarize our year. Welcome back to the show, everyone. First of all, I want to wish everybody, I hope you had a nice Christmas. Hopefully you, uh, you will have a uh, happy new year as well. And I got to tell you, it has been a crazy year. You know, uh, I'm hoping for a better one myself next year as well. Uh, you know, the, the bottom line is, uh, I think that in terms of the financial world and what we talk about on this show, I think we've got good things to come. And I think that one of the things I'm trying to urge people not to do, uh, in my community at least, is to get sort of this mentality where you think that you're in a bunker mentality where you're sitting around waiting for something to explode. I think that's um, not a good idea right now. I think that's, uh, you know, that's a recipe for losing out on opportunities. There really is no current um, distress in multifamily markets, apartment buildings and stuff. There's no distress now, uh, regardless of, you know, uh, some of the bumps along the roads that we're going to hit in the next six months. I'm sorry, but we're just not going to have that. And, um, you know, you don't want to end up missing opportunities to buy early on in this next run up, which I think we're going to have. That's my personal opinion. Obviously not advice, but I'll tell you, I truly believe that right now that uh, the rest of this decade, I think, is going to be uh, most of the rest of this decade is going to be very strong. I think that um, let's think about it rationally for a moment. Let's take the macro 
economics out of the picture and you know how these things happen. But think about your own personal situation. Um, you know, being locked down, being unable to visit family, being unable to take vacations, do fun things, go to restaurants that you want to. I know some people are able to in some states, but you know, dine in, go skiing, all of these things that you can't do. This time next year, you're going to be able to do. And what that means for this country is we're going to spend like crazy. And my prediction is that 2021 is going to end up with huge GDP growth. I think we're going to continue to see, uh, because of that, actual real growth and additional growth just because of the money that's been pumped in. I think you're going to see some crazy GDP numbers. Um, I think you're going to, as a result of that, see very, very strong uh, asset value growth, including real estate. And I think we just need to stick to our principles during this period of time and ride the wave. Um, That being said, you know, I know that, uh, uh, you know, and and things could go the other way as well, but that's that's the truth uh, for any time in history. So, I would, um, you know, I'm very optimistic about next year. I'm also looking forward to getting Wealth Formula uh, meetups again, which hopefully I'm hoping I'm shooting for this summer potentially myself. Uh, I think that's probably safe. Everybody will get, you know, inoculated by then, et cetera. Anyway, that is it for the last um, show of the year. This is Buck Joffrey signing off on 2020. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.